What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, Bono and Eisen, and Mike Coe. Tonight on Fast, we're breaking out the fancy silverware, serving up a pre-Thanksgiving Day feast of the companies trying to bring some holiday cheer to your doorstep. But will they be able to deliver? Plus, a work-from-home takeout target, the big headline that sent shares of Slack surging today. And later, an under-the-radar way to get in on the Bitcoin boom. You'll hear from the CEO of MicroStrategy, how they are cashing in on the crypto craze. And stick around for a special bonus hour of Fast. We are answering all your burning trading questions. Tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. We just might answer them on the air. But first, we start off with a countdown to Christmas. Only 29 days to go. And shoppers and retailers are gearing up for the official kickoff to the holiday shopping season this Friday. The retail ETF, the XRT, already filled with Christmas cheer, rallying more than 20% since the start of November. So we thought tonight we'd ask the question. What is the best Black Friday buy? Lululemon, Macy's, Target, or Ulta Beauty? Tim, I'll kick it off with you. You got the Yule log going in the background. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's the holidays. I thought I'd light a fire here in my office um, just to keep, keep warm. And, uh, you know, when you think about those four names, I mean, Macy's has had such a remarkable run over the last three weeks. It's hard to say that this is uh, something you want to jump in here, except for the fact that I think there's both technical and fundamentals. The fundamentals are that, that actually, if you just looked at those numbers that they reported, 40% of sales are coming from digital. Seven million new digital customers that have come into Macy's through uh, the online doors uh, over the last couple quarters. And the fact that there's, there's a better margin profile, there's a much better inventory management profile, and it's a company that, that it, its best days may be behind it, but its worst days, I think, are behind it. And, and a 28% short interest has a lot to do with this move. Uh, and if you look at the CDS and you look at the credit guys who often, when we talk about some of these more beleaguered, uh, especially retail plays, uh, the bonds and the credit story has been telling you the story. And that story uh, over the last three weeks is that you've seen some tightening of the Macy's credit. The balance sheet has certainly been uh, bolstered. And I think free cash flow, which was not expected in the third quarter, is actually expected again into the fourth quarter. So um, I like Macy's here. I think the Ulta story is one where beauty comes back, but maybe not quite as much. And I think if you if you had, uh, uh, you know, a, a look at department stores over specialty retail right now, department stores are kind of still in the thunder, even though they're broken. I'm going to I'm going to jump ahead because Ulta was not any of you guys' top pick for the holiday shopping season. I'm wondering why. I mean, Bono and everybody's on Zoom calls. You got to have, I mean, maybe not you in particular, but lipstick and concealer and blush and all that stuff to get ready for all these uh, <laughs> maybe. The video conferences. I mean, maybe no, no judgments if it is, in fact, you. Um, <laughs> but you didn't like Ulta as your top pick. <laughs> Uh, I didn't, right? You know, it's it's really, we're going into the holidays, and the last thing you want to do is purchase something and end up with a lump of coal. And for me, it's about sticking with what has worked. You know, we've talked about challenges to the supply and demand system. And for me, it's really a company like Target, right? Like, you, they have a very, 
you know, vertically integrated business model. They have a wide array of offerings. It's trades cheap to Walmart, and they still have these local distribution channels, which allows them to kind of navigate some of the challenges that we're seeing in some of the other sectors. So for me, going into the year in, it's more about making sure that I deliver on what I give my friends and family and making sure that there's some downside protection there. <laughs> Mike, you also like Target, and I'm wondering hmm. why and how you start thinking about valuation with Target at these levels in, and if the p- post-pandemic environment will be such in which Target can maintain its multiple. Yeah, so both you and Bonwin actually hit on a key things, two things that I think really are relevant for Target. So one, Target trading at a discount to Walmart. One of the reasons Walmart is trading at that lofty valuation is they are actually trying to figure out the digital landscape. And I think what we're beginning to see is that recognized brands, respected brands, brands that are considered to be safe are going to be ones that can actually transition to the digital landscape. I think Target is probably going to follow on Walmart's sort of success in that area. Amazon's not going to be the only player. And although it is trading at a slightly higher multiple than it has historically, just take a look at how it's priced relative to the rest of the market. A little over 20 times earnings were sort of right there with the S&P, but we have that potential. Now, what you were referring to, I think, is the fact that obviously some names like Target have been bolstered by a rush to buy sort of the needed goods. And Target obviously has been an important supplier of those. But Target and Walmart both have also been making a transition into the grocery space. Now, this isn't to say that I don't like Ulta or Lulu. I do like Lulu, by the way. Macy's, I think, is kind of a binary situation. Tim was kind of hitting on this, but it is a more speculative one. I don't think they're completely out of the woods. I think that they are somewhat out of the woods. And obviously, even though it's had this big spike, there's still material upside in Macy's if they do manage to pull it off. But that's really the big question still. And as far as Lulu is concerned, you know, here's an interesting case because I think they are becoming a lifestyle brand as well as an exceptional product brand. And if you're trying to figure out how big a company like that can become, companies that I would look to as examples might include things like Nike. So I still think there's a lot of upside potentially in Lulu as well. But Target is my pick, backstopped by the valuation relative to the market. Now, I know that Grouse is all dressed up on the top, but I know on the bottom he, he loves the sweatpants because <laughs> I, I saw it the other day. You stood up in front of your camera, Grasso, and you gave it away. You're wearing gray sweatpants. Um, today you're wearing a vest on top. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't you wow. like a Lulu? Are you wearing sweatpants today? Well, first of all, to clarify, I'm, I'm wearing green pants with Christmas trees on them today. Uh, today. So that's, that's clearing that up. But, yes, I do like Lulu. But, the, the, I, you know, I said it the other night. The way I'm looking at this is through the prism of whoever did well this year is not going to do well next year. Whoever didn't do well this year is going to do well in the next quarter or so. Because of what Tim laid out, you know, Macy's, Tim laid out a great fundamental story on Macy's. All they have to do is be better than expectations. So the way I look at this, Macy's down 34% for the year, but up 90% in November. Ulta up up 10% for the year and and actually up 43% for November. Target up 40% for the year and up 20%. So you see the pattern there that if you did well, it's very hard to replicate it come 2021. I love Target, love Lulu. Lulu doubled its addressable market, offering stuff for men as well. But the problem is, in order to do well in 2021, you've got to do better than you did in 2020. The bar is extremely low for Macy's. Tim said the short interest, all of this tailwind 
for names that didn't perform this year that will in the next quarter. So that's almost like a, a dogs of retail kind of theory. <laughs> you take the dogs this year and they'll be yeah. top performers next year. Tim, do you buy into that sort of um, mentality? Um, and, and by the way, last night we were uh, we were shocked to learn that BK was only wearing yoga pants these days. So that you know, just just to <laughs> give you some perspective on what has happened to the world, Steve's gray sweatpants I would prefer uh, certainly as Christmas trees. But but I, I, the the way I see this is I, I think the retailers are are going to be very solid through the fourth quarter. Uh, and in fact, I think probably they're to be owned uh, right up before you get. 4Q earnings in the first quarter where they're also going to give you a guide. I think, yes, we have, we're going to have seen a lot, of, uh, a lot of sales pulled forward with a number of players, especially with the stay-at-home and also uh, a longer holiday season. I'm not sure I want to own a lot of these retailers into the second part of next year, uh, but I think the story that we're going to get and I think the runway we have is through year-end, and I think sales are going to be strong. If you, if you look at trends overall sector-wise, after a three, almost four-year uh, wicked underperformance to the S&P by the XRT over the last 14 months or 15 mm -hmm. months, it's outperformed by about 20. We talked about the extreme outperformance in November. But even if you took out November, uh, retail has started to turn the tide. And I think a lot of this has been these companies that have changed from being brick and mortar uh, and, and obviously big box stores that had to adjust to a digital environment, they're doing that. And in fact, um, in the same way that Amazon is maybe no longer the same tech play outside of AWS, uh, I think a lot of these retailers will be thought of the same way. It's a long way of saying, I think you actually have a continued recovery in retail. Yeah, and we should be clear that the XRT, and Mike, we touched on this in Options Action last Friday, which I know everybody out there watched, uh, the components of the XRT are unusual of in terms of the top components, names like a magnet, names that you wouldn't necessarily think of as top components of the XRT. So how does that sort of um, change your view of how this index will do going into what will be their reporting season in the first quarter, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point, right? Because when we take a look, whether it's exchange-traded products or indices, most of the ones that people commonly think of tend to be market cap-weighted. And what that means is the largest and most well-known companies are going to be the biggest representation as constituents of those particular products. But in XRT, that actually isn't the case. You have a really broad weight. You actually have a lot of auto retailing in there, mm -hmm. for example. And actually, those are the kinds of things that I think are increasingly problematic. Big ticket items, if you start to see some, you know, basically continued weakness out of consumers in some of those areas where they might be stretched. You know, one of the reasons I like Target is because they do sell staples. They do sell the things that people need to buy and they will continue to need to. That actually creates basically some form of a floor. But when you take a look at XRT and the more discretionary stuff, that's the area that I get a little bit more concerned. Things like Lulu, you know, the sort of upper end area, they might be a little bit more immune in my view. All right. Well, one hot item this holiday season, video game consoles. But good luck finding one. Our Josh Lipton joins us now with the details. Hey, Josh. So, Melissa, the biggest console launch ever. That is how Sony is describing the launch of its new PlayStation 5 console. Now, we don't have hard numbers from the company detailing what that means exactly, but presumably, analysts say, that means they shipped more than they did in Q4 2013. The last time they launched a new console, that number, remember, 4.2 million. And Sony now says more inventory will be coming before the end of the year. However, it's so secret that it hasn't been easy to find these new consoles from Sony or Microsoft, which launched the new Xbox Series X and S. In fact, 
fact, a Microsoft executive recently suggested that its new consoles will be supply constrained into next year. So why this shortage? Well, IDC's Lewis Ward says demand is way, way up as more people all over the world are now looking for in-home entertainment due to the pandemic. Also, he notes, the companies do usually limit volume, at least early on. That's because margins are thin due to new pricey components. That changes over time, of course, as component prices drop and volume then picks up. So who's going to win this war? At least in the near term, Lewis Ward tells us that he's going to place his bet on Sony. He forecasts Sony to sell 5 million PS5 consoles by the end of the year. For Microsoft, he estimates 3.7 million Xbox Series X and S consoles. Back to you all. All right, Josh, thanks. Josh Lipton. Bono, and I'm not sure if you're in the market for a console or not, but what, what is the trade? We've known <laughs> that video games have been hot during this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, I remember back when I was a kid and played these regularly and I could never get them or waiting in these extremely long lines. So I don't really think that's much of a change. But when I'm looking at the competitive landscape and looking at the space, right, I still think that investors continue to want to demand growth. And for that reason, I'm taking a look at take two. I realize it trades at about 30 times next year's uh, price to earnings, which is rich vis-a-vis the space. But if you look at the revenue growth and the free cash flow that that company spits off, I think that that multiple is well justified. And that's kind of how I'm looking in terms of, you know, one of the participants that could, that can win out in that space. Yeah. Grasso, where do you go? So I like the take two because uh, take two is actually right at resistance levels. It lo- actually looks like it's going to break through that 175, 180 level. Um, Electronic Arts has rolled over. And if you look at, at um, ATVI, that has rolled over as well. I'm all talking technicals here. So even though kids are clamoring around for their Xbox or their PlayStation, that we used to play this with NVIDIA because you wanted to have that gaming chip, or you would say, let's play it through Microsoft. But I think both of those names are getting hit with that rotation out of growth and into value. But if you're going to play the gaming, I, I think we just stick and make it easy. And I'll, I'll go uh, you know, hand up with Bono wins take two. Yeah, Mike, you have been in the market for some of these consoles for your own kids, and you haven't found them, have you? So uh, it's really interesting that you mention it, because the PlayStation 5 that I finally (laughs) got my hands on was delivered about 45 minutes ago. I happened to order it through hey, Walmart.com. Hey, I spent hey, hey. weeks. I have to tell you, I Mike, spent don't you weeks think your children are watching this show and now you've just away. blown the surprise for them? You're giving it away. <laughs> it's, well, first of all, it's for Mike. It's for Mike, not his kids. <laughs> no. You know, oh Steve, my. actually, there is oh. something I'm getting for myself, too. The RTX 3090, that is the latest sort of series. That's the upper end oh, of the latest like series that. of... Uh, GPUs that are coming from NVIDIA is actually in the machine that I did order for myself. So, and that has been also very hard to come by. So, you know, there is very high demand for that. I know that there's high demand for Xbox. I'm bullish on Sony as a result. I like the Take-Two trade. I will tell you, though, that what concerns me on this list of stocks is probably GameStop. And the reason Mm. that GameStop concerns me is because when you take a look at the way this is, it's all digital delivery for the content that all these machines are going to run. So whether you want the hardware that NVIDIA represents, whether you want the newest Microsoft Xbox, whether you want the newest Sony PlayStation, the question is that on the content side, you know, if you're creating the content, great. If you're distributing the content and GameStop's in that business, that's going to be a more difficult situation because we're going to be getting it digitally. Right, right. Um, Tim, just quickly, do you have any Christmas surprises you like to blow on national TV? 
Seriously, uh, look, Mike, you, you know, what we do in my house is there are some presents that come from Santa and some presents that come from mom and dad. Make sure they know this one is from mom and dad. Otherwise, you've just spoiled Santa Claus for not only your kids, but possibly the entire country that's watching right now. Very disappointing, Mike. Stock trading um, and parenting but, but tips. But if you want a gaming play. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. If you want a gaming play, just really quickly, uh, the best gaming company in the world is the one that owns 40% of Fortnite and Epic Games. It's Tencent. They're the biggest gaming incubator. They by far uh, are the most influential gaming company in the world, and you get a lot of exposure to Chinese social, which I realize has also been dangerous uh, at times. But Tencent, to me, is, is the call. We've got to get some breaking news out of D.C. Kayla tashi has got the story. Kayla. Melissa, the Biden transition said today that it expects to announce members of the economic team this time next week. But multiple sources are now telling me and CNBC's Brian Shorts who is on that short list and for what roles. We are told by multiple sources that TIAA president and CEO Roger Ferguson is currently under consideration for director of the National Economic Council. Ferguson has said he will retire at the end of March 2021, further fueling speculation about his intentions to join this administration. Number two, former Amex CEO and chairman Ken Chenault is also being considered for what is described as a top economic role that was not immediately clear to either my sources or the sources that Brian Schwartz spoke to, but a very notable name to be added to this list. And finally, Gary Gensler, the former head of the uh, top commodities organization here in Washington, former assistant treasury secretary under President Clinton and former Goldman Sachs executive Gary Gensler, who's advising the transition on regulatory policy, is under close consideration for deputy treasury secretary. Previously, just a few weeks ago, he had been talked about potentially as SEC chairman, but now sources say he is being most closely looked at for deputy Treasury secretary. Now, Melissa, these names are notable for a few reasons. Number one, they all have experience working on Wall Street. Gensler, as I mentioned, formerly worked at Goldman Sachs. Ferguson obviously runs one of the uh, most foremost uh, asset managers in the country, and Chenault ran Amex for nearly two decades. Number two, the administration has been clear it wants to promote people of color to these top economic roles. Certainly Ferguson and Chenault would fit that bill. And then finally, they're most notable because of the age of the potential incoming Treasury Secretary in Janet Yellen, who is 74 years old. She has not been officially announced, but sources have confirmed that that is who the Biden team uh, is expected to announce next week for Treasury. And as much as people, Melissa, talk about potentially Joe Biden only serving one term as president, they wonder how long Yellen would want to serve as Treasury Secretary. And the names that I just mentioned are being looked at as a very deep bench for the economic team and potential successors to Yellen if she does decide to step down before that four years is up. All right. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche with some interesting names there. Roger Ferguson, of course, floated as a, a potential Treasury secretary pick but before Janet Yellen was was named. Gary Gensler sort of sticks out to me, Mike Coe. He is known for cracking down on Wall Street banks uh, during his tenure. And, and I'm wondering if you think that that changes how one would view Treasury and their willingness or desire to be tougher on financials. I'm not, I have to say, I'm not really terribly concerned about that going into this new administration. For one thing, I mean, one, financials really, relative to a lot of other sectors, since basically the credit crisis, in my view, have been significant laggards. And I think they've priced in a lot of sort of that type of pressure already. If anything, I'm probably a better buyer there. Uh, and, you know, typically, it's, this is a common refrain. We, we often talk about, 
you know, concerns about basically more onerous regulation or heavier fees or taxes or things on transactions. Those are the types of things that would concern me more. Those usually emerge from Congress. I'm not terribly concerned, though, I have to say. I, I'm still a net buyer of financials here. You know, it's interesting because Gensler actually taught a course at MIT about Bitcoin and blockchain and is viewed as very friendly to that industry, to cryptocurrency. So that, that's sort of another interesting layer to this whole thing. Um, Tim, what do you make of some of these uh, potential picks? Look, I, I ultimately, I think the U.S. Treasury should be in charge of our currency. And therefore, um, you know, if they can figure out a solution on digital currency that allows the, the government to be in charge of the flow of currency, I think we're going to have it. And, and, and that's just my view on all this. I, I think, you know, the most important news of this week outside of vaccine news was Janet Yellen. And, and so the fact that we have a Treasury Secretary, who has been a Fed chairman, has thought to pr provide uh, more support for for the economy during periods of stress and comes out of a you know, period of innovation where maybe even the Fed um, arguably has stepped way too far. I mean, you can make an argument that right now we're merging the Treasury and the Federal Reserve. Um, great for markets, terrible for our country. And, and, and I think it's just something that at least in the short term, equities have found a lot of joy in. There's, there's, there's a push for fiscal that's going to come out of this Treasury that certainly isn't there on the way out right now. And I think when you combine that with a Fed chairman, Powell, who basically this is what he's been asking for, um, I, I think sum it up. This administration has diffused a lot of the, the market oriented risk and, and the radical liberalism uh, fears, whether they're right or wrong, that, that were surrounding uh, a change in the White House. And, and so far, um, the market's gotten almost everything they could ask for. All right. Coming up, it is not just gaming consoles and short supply this holiday season. Why it may be harder than ever to get that perfect gift your loved ones for, for your loved ones this year, even if you're able to find it. But first, shares of Slack soaring on news a deal with Salesforce is in the works. What that means in big tech's battle to own the work from home space. That is coming up after the short break. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Slack soaring higher today on news that Salesforce is in talks to acquire the workplace communications company. Deidre Bose has got the details. Debo. Melissa, CNBC.com hearing that a deal could come as soon as next week. So what's in it for Slack? A potentially powerful ally in Salesforce and Mark Benioff to help it face the competitive onslaught from Microsoft Teams. Now, when Slack went public just last year through a direct listing, it was notching quarterly growth of nearly 70%. Uh, amid the pandemic this year, however, revenue growth has been steady at about 50% year over year, as other work-from-home darlings like Zoom put up much stronger numbers. So it's been a relative underperformer here. Meanwhile, Microsoft has been a big part of the story. The enterprise giant has been aggressively marketing Teams and also has the advantage of including the app as part of its 
Office 365 software bundle. Salesforce, itself a major player in enterprise tech, could presumably help Slack in that battle. But for Salesforce investors, perhaps this isn't as straightforward a win. Analysts, they're splitting the implications of a deal. And that's uncertainty reflected in CRM shares today, ending lower by more than 5%. Uh, Salesforce has been very active in M&A, purchasing Tableau and MuleSoft in recent years. Those were big acquisitions. But some, like those at Evercore, they say that CRM now needs to deliver on higher levels of operating leverage. They can't do this deal. It's not the right time. They say that even with its enterprise heft, competing with Microsoft will be extremely difficult. Melissa, Salesforce reports quarterly earnings next Tuesday. We will see if anything materializes by then. But either way, not a quarter or a call that you will want to miss. Back over to you. It's always a good call. Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa. Uh, Bono and Eisen, uh, how do you feel about a potential deal uh, between CRM and Slack? So if my memory serves me correctly, I believe in June or so, I think Mike was on the show as well, we talked about Slack and how they were competing or not competing with Microsoft. Slack really appealing to more small, medium-sized businesses, and Microsoft, as we all know, being the behemoth, applying to more enterprise value, uh, software service, et cetera, et cetera. And so this, this here, for me, it's a natural sequence, right? Because you have essentially the small business, the medium-sized business, and now you've partnered with, a, with CRM that allows you to, as she just mentioned, bundle this software and operate in a much more cost-effective way. So for me, it, it's a bottoms-up and tops-down deal. I see a natural sequence in terms of how you engage with your customer base and roll it up. Yeah, Grasso, what do you make of a deal, especially the, from the CRM perspective? I think CRM had to do it. I, I, I understand. I should say I understand why they did it. Um, I think that people are slacked out. I think that people are zoomed out. I think that this is a rear view mirror deal. I understand as I, as I started out saying why Salesforce did it. It's a home run for Slack. I think the days of the best days are behind Zoom and behind Slack. And I understand that to be competitive with Microsoft, Salesforce had to do this. So I'm up in the air whether it's good, bad, or indifferent for Salesforce going forward. Why, why do they, I mean, Tim, do you think that they had to do it? Why would they have to do it? Especially, I mean, if you believe that the best days of Slack are behind it, why, why do you need to do a deal like that? Well, I, I don't know if I believe that. I, I, uh -huh. I think the, 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 the share price and the multiples people are paying for uh, work-at-home software uh, may, may have peaked. But, um, look, I, I, I think Salesforce is not playing defense. I think they're playing offense. Uh, and I think, you know, has been kind of tabbed here. This seems like win-win to me. This seems actually like a mule outcome where you take uh, Slack and plug it into a much larger ecosystem and infrastructure and give it a whole new, you know, outlook, I think. I think you get economies of scale and the collaboration element of this is a big, big win for CRM, who's had a huge move in their share price. I mean, why not use, yeah, they overpaid, but I mean, relative to where their shares were uh, three, six months ago, um, they got this thing for free effectively. So, you know, I, 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 I like the deal. I think they need to be thinking about tomorrow. And, and um, hopefully we're not all working from home at some point. Mel, I can't wait to see you in the studio. But in the meantime, um, I don't think the concept of software technology and work at home and collaboration and synergies and efficiencies, uh, I think we've just begun. Yeah. Mike, what did you see in the options space? Well, we saw a lot of activity in the options space. I mean, in, in the case of Slack, work. We saw more than 12 times the average daily options volume on the call side. Most of that was in the 40-strike calls, some that expire this Friday and many that expire a week from this Friday. Both traded over 50,000 contracts. 
The ones that expire at the end of next week actually ended up the day over $3 because the stock itself ended up over $40. What you can take away from that is that the options traders are obviously betting that a deal will be announced, and they're giving us some sense of what they think the valuation number will be, which is going to be on the high side in their expectation of $24, $25 billion in terms of market capitalization. And I, for one, think that the deal is a good one because I don't think that this type of workflow, whether we're working from home or even in offices, is going anywhere. And Slack has been adding a lot of functionality. I'm a Slack user, so I know that. And I can say that I think they're trying to compete not only with Teams, but also with Zoom. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. It's crunch time for delivery companies, but the group is facing a host of new challenges this year. We break down what's in store as these companies rush to fill your holiday orders. And later, the industrial name that's on pace for one of its best weeks ever. Is it too late to get in, or is the company building towards an even brighter future? We've got that and a lot more when this supersized edition of Fast Money returns. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. The holiday season is officially underway, but a surge of homebound Americans turning to e-commerce for gift shopping might spell trouble for the transports. Frank Hollins got the story. Hey, Frank. Hey there, Melissa. You know, the holiday peak from Black Friday to New Year's Day is traditionally not really a great time for the stocks of carriers like UPS and FedEx, despite the boom in business, especially in recent years as e-commerce grows. For example, last year, both really underperforming the broader market. Transports also facing the headwind of a trucker shortage The U.S. will end this year with an estimated 200,000 fewer drivers due to the pandemic, closing training schools, delaying the licensing of drivers, and leading many older drivers into retirement. Now, that may not seem like a lot with nearly 4 million drivers here in the U.S., but demand for trucking, it more than doubled last month. And major trucking companies, they have all warned about rising rates and difficulty in hiring and retaining drivers in their most recent earnings. The CEO of Warner Enterprises, a trucker for Walmart, says it's already impacting product availability for all of us and raising the cost for retailers. Well, I think if the driver shortage persists, it's one of the impacts on inventory levels at stores, and it's one of the impacts on what ultimately drives rates. 
And demand for delivery vans and tractor trailers also spiking as companies go to the used market for supply. FedEx and UPS, they've been clear to us. They say that shortage is not directly impacting them. But both companies are facing the challenge of an avalanche of less profitable residential e-commerce and the impact on their margins. Melissa, back over to you. Frank, thank you. Frank Holland. You would think that they would be the most wonderful time of year for for these players, Tim. But in the past, we have seen shipping delays really impact stocks because of the massive disappointment. I mean, if if Mike didn't get that game console about an hour ago now, uh, you know, and that happened on a widespread basis across America, that could be an issue for for UPS or FedEx. Yeah, I, I hope he did because he's he's now not only you know destroyed the Santa Claus concept, but he 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 better walk in the door with that thing. <laughs> and, and if you think about what what happened to FedEx and UPS last year, yeah, it was a big issue, and there was huge bottlenecks that they couldn't work through. Um, I, I think the 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 performance of those stocks, though, and it was really the last the previous two holiday seasons mm-hmm. were more a function of cyclicality of the economy and, and where they were leading indicators. But look, what we've learned from UPS and FedEx is that they've actually mastered the, the, the essentially the B2C um, and, as opposed to the B2B side, which seemed to be higher margin. But again, um, what FedEx is doing on integrating ground and express and some of those synergies and actually using the entire system and doing things we didn't think they were going to do is part of that story. I'm long FedEx. I stay long. Transports have outperformed the S&P by 15 to, to, to 20 percent since July. Um, so for those people that think it's time to take profits, I don't think we're through that yet. Yeah. Bono, what do you think? I mean, I think Tina, uh, simply th- there really isn't another alternative, right? So yeah, clearly you, you might see some some cost pressure uh, in the interim, but I really think these companies have done a good job. This isn't a new phenomenon now, right? We've been in this lockdown situation. The, the advances that they've been able to make on the logistic front have already kind of transpired. So I, I, I no, I, I really don't think this is much of a headwind in terms of share price. Um, and again, I reiterate, there, there really isn't another alternative. This is a reason why I did mention names like Target and Walmart, Amazon, et cetera, that do have local distribution and have kind of, kind of gotten in front of this holiday rush scenario. Um, but I, again, I think you've seen all these companies kind of prep for this and get ahead of the curve. All right. Coming up, getting a little nervous about the breakneck rise in Bitcoin. We'll talk to the CEO of a company that could present a different way to play the crypto craze. That's up next. And don't forget... There's an extra hour of Fast Money coming up at 6 p.m. If you got questions for the traders, we want to hear them. Tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. We'll get you some answers. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin taking off this week, topping 19,000 for the first time since late 2017. For more on what is behind the move, where it goes from here, let's bring in Michael Saylor, CEO of MicroStrategy. Michael, great to have you with us. Um, Thank you for having me. We, we had you on because you're the CEO of a software company who decided to invest your cash into Bitcoin. Uh, and I'm wondering how, how you came about that decision. Were you, were you thinking we've got a lot of cash because our business generates a lot of cash? So, you know, could it be treasuries or money market, straight up cash or Bitcoin? I mean, what was your thought process? Well, the story here is, Due to the rapid expansion of the monetary supply by the central banks, the cost of capital has tripled from 5% to 15% over the past year. And if we look out over the next four years, bond coupons and EPS growth rates are going to need to exceed that hurdle in order to preserve wealth. We had $500 million worth of cash, but we knew we were going to generate another $500 million worth of cash. And we realized that if we held it in cash, it was going to debase by 10, 15% a year. And I didn't want to lose half of it. 
So what isn't so well understood is the BTC, Bitcoin, is the best safe haven treasury reserve asset in the world right now. And it's engineered to be superior to gold in all aspects. So that, that being the case, a lot of people understand the asset story of Bitcoin. It's up 100% annually each year for the past decade, more or less. Mm -hmm. What they don't understand is that Bitcoin's a, it's a monetary network. And as a monetary network, it's capable of storing and channeling energy over time without power loss. Uh -huh. So we got really excited about this idea. And we saw it as a solution for the store of value problem, not just for the $300 trillion of capital in the world, but for the 7.5 billion people right. on the planet. And so that, that's pretty compelling. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the sorry, sorry to interrupt, Michael, but, you know, cash on a balance sheet and, and wanting to preserve the power of that cash is one thing. Investing it in something that's speculative is another. I mean, are you, are you a software company or are you a Bitcoin hedge fund at this point? I mean, why bother with the software part of the business if your belief truly is, is that Bitcoin is going to go up 100% every year, uh, you know, going forward? Well, first of all, we do have a software company generating cash, but if we simply swept the cash into fiat currency and allowed it to base at 15% a year, we'd be losing as much on the balance sheet as we generated from the P&L. So that didn't make sense. Um, on the other hand, the traditional concerns about Bitcoin have been that it might be hacked, it might be copied, it might be banned. And after a decade, it hasn't been hacked. No one's managed to copy it. It's not going to be banned. So although people look at it as being volatile, it's volatile maybe in the first decade. The next decade going forward, it doesn't look like it's going to be that volatile. It actually looks like it's emerging as the primary treasury reserve asset mm -hmm. for people that are looking for some way to avoid the great monetary inflation. How do you, view, think though, how do you view, though, the size of, of your Bitcoin position relative to the size of your business, and is there a point at which, even just for portfolio management purposes, you trim your Bitcoin position in order to be conservative? I mean, your, your enterprise value is, what, $2.4 billion or so? I'm not sure what your Bitcoin position is. You in, initially invested $400 million or so back in August, and that position's got, got to be enormous by now. Well, look, we, we love the enterprise business intelligence business, and we want to be in it. But we don't want to decapitalize the company by drawing our treasury to zero. And we don't want to allow our treasury to be debased by 10 or 20 percent a year either. So we had to do something. I think that as investors start to understand the Bitcoin story, they're going to migrate their capital on the Bitcoin network. And that's going to create a virtuous cycle of adoption, followed by price appreciation, followed by value accretion followed by technology integration from companies like you see Square and PayPal. It'll mm -hmm. be Apple and Google shortly. That's going to drive more adoption. And, and that means that you really want to plug your company into the Bitcoin monetary network, right? It's, it's probably the biggest thing that's happened over the past decade. It's, it's going to be bigger than the FANG stocks. It's going to be bigger than Apple, Amazon, Facebook, the social mm -hmm. networks. And it's the ideal time to plug into it because 99% of the investors don't understand what I just said. And with $350 billion of monetary energy in the Bitcoin network, it's all but unstoppable at this point. Last quick question, Michael. And this is a simple, straightforward. Are you a software company or are you a Bitcoin fund? Our P&L is a software company and we sell the world's best enterprise business intelligence software. Okay. Our okay. balance sheet 
is no longer invested in dollars. Our balance sheet is invested in BTC because we believe that's the best treasury reserve asset we could choose in the world. Got it. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Great speaking with you. Thank you. Fascinating story. Michael Saylor of MicroStrategy. Uh, Tim, this stock is up 84% in three months. I will ask you, from an investment standpoint, a person looking at this stock, do you see it as a Bitcoin fund or a software company? Oh, boy. Um, he couldn't answer the question. How can I? Uh, you know, I think you have a case here where the, the argument in favor of Bitcoin is one where we're seeing a lot of institutional players come on board and, and, and actually uh, make it such that the, you know, the market and the support under this level of Bitcoin is high, right? There, there's a lot of people that are looking to buy the next pullback. Um, so I, I think in general, um, he said two things. He, he, he one said that the Federal Reserve uh, and, and central banks around the world have created financial, you know, essentially obliteration, at least oppression, mm-hmm. um, and, and that you have nothing else to do. They pushed you out the risk curve. Boy, he's gone out the risk curve. Um, and and uh, while he's, he's laughing right now, um, my guess is that's not what a lot of his investors and shareholders thought was going on at the company. He's been very successful. Um, what am I to say? They're probably all very happy right now. There's probably a whole new class of investor in shares of MSTR at this point, Grasso. And I'll go to you because yep. at one point in time you invested in Overstock and not quite the same story, but, you know, Overstock, obviously an online goods seller, but also was involved in the crypto space. And for that reason, you like that stock. For this reason, do you like or would you like or consider MicroStrategy? Yeah, I think I think you would. And, and that's exactly right. I didn't buy uh, Overstock for its e-commerce uh, angle. I bought it for the Bitcoin and setting up the exchanges. And that's what I, that was what attracted me to that. That's what should attract people to this name as well. Uh, th- there's two things that get in the way of Bitcoin, regulation and ignorance. And they both go hand in hand. The more people get educated on this, the higher Bitcoin will go and the higher stocks like this will go as well. Coming up, one top Wall Street firm says it is time to tap the brakes on Ford. We will break down this call next. Much more Fast Money straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Ford dropping nearly 4% today. Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas downgrading the stock to an equal weight, saying the company's EV strategy isn't as clear as those for competitors like GM. While Ford has unveiled electric models for its F-150 pickup and Mustang, Jonas is less impressed by its decision to continue offering hybrids. You can read more on that right now on our website, cnbc.com slash pro. But in the meantime, uh, Mike, let's trade it. Do you like this call? Do you agree with it? Yeah, well, obviously, the move towards electronic vehicles and General Motors seems to have mapped out a pretty good one is obviously critical. And I think that's going to affect the multiple. But, of course, we also have to think about the near term bottom line. You know, when it comes to Ford, what is the biggest source for their bottom line? It's their biggest selling vehicle. It is the country's biggest selling vehicle. That's the F-150. A new one has been ruled has been rolled out for 2021. And I think that's going to tell the near term story. So I think actually people are worried about the electronic electric vehicle market. What you can do is you can buy this thing at a relatively cheap valuation versus some others in the industry. And I think that they will catch up eventually. Yeah. Bonowin, it seems that Morgan Stanley prefers GM over Ford. Do you? 
Yeah, I mean, in the short term, certainly, right? It's, it, I mean, the, all the hysteria and the we've talked about re-rating and valuations around, uh, you know, these EVs it really is what's there. And when you don't have that, when the competitive landscape is sh- is shifting and shaping, really, I mean, it, I think it's pretty cut and dry. And they laid it out pretty well in their research report. They've got to have a strategy. I think they've done a good job of addressing some of the weakness in Europe. But I think EV is really needs to be the focal point, and until it is, I think they'll continue to lag. You know, it's funny, Tim. We were just talking about this yesterday uh, on Fast Money, this is us, and you're yeah, this you're, is our show. you're disagreeing with um, who was down on Ford. Who could it have Mr. been? Nathan. Dan. Mr. Dan Nathan. was down on Ford. Dan. Here we are. Yeah. Um, what'd you yes. make of, of Adam well, Jonas's call? Look, Adam has always been, uh, he's a friend of the show. He's always been very thoughtful. And, and, and you know, his, this is a relative value call. They went from overweight to, to, I think, just market perform on Ford. So let's be clear, they're not negative. Um, his point is that the market is now pricing the EV as an opportunity and, and not as a threat to these companies. That's his thesis. And, and, and therefore, if anything, what, what you saw is him, I think he's goosing up the multiple on GM. He still got him. He moved up the EPS to, I think, 550 a share in 2021. So, that, you know, at 10 times, it's a $55 stock. I, I, I think they're somewhere around there. Hmm. So that's really the story. But the, the move to all in, no hybrids. And I think the other point that Adam made was no Europe. Um, these, these are things that have been a hallmark of, e, of GM's transition. Why relative value? I like GM over Ford, too, but if GM works, Ford works. All right. Coming up, get comfy. There is an extra hour of Fast Money up next. Do you have questions for the traders? We want to hear them. Tweet us at CNBC Fast Money, and we'll get you some answers. But first, we got the final trades on the other side. Stay tuned. It is time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim. Yeah, uh, Mel, we're working up an appetite for tomorrow. By the way, parents, get your kids away from the TV because in the second hour, Mike might try to ruin the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny. Final trade, Morgan Stanley. Triple threat. Grasso. Virgin Galactic. These are the days why I own this stock. Up 9%, going much higher from here. Virgin Galactic. Bono and Ison. First solar, I've been constructive on it for a while. I would watch that 97 level. See if it gets through that previous high. If not, take some profits. Mike, you know, by the way, Mike and Steve have fireplaces, real ones with no fires, and Tim's got a fake fire in his computer. It's very oh, ironic. Um, Mike Coe, your final trade. Yeah, the anti-PO was a disappointment for Bob. I think that's an opportunity for investors. This thing is trading probably five turns cheaper to EBITDA versus something like Amazon with 40% better EBITDA growth. I think Baba is the play. All right, that does it for us this hour of Fast Money. But wait, we've got a special bonus hour coming up. Still time to send in your questions, so please do so. Tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. We'll get them answered right after this break. Stay tuned. Money fans, Kramer's off tonight, but you are in luck. We've got a bonus hour of Fast Money coming your way. We're answering all your questions about the hot stocks you're trading right now. We want to hear from you, so tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. We just might answer you live on the air. With us tonight, Dan Nathan, Tim Seymour, and Bono and Eisen. Coming up, 
We are taking to the friendly skies. It's typically one of the busiest travel days of the year, and one viewer wants to know if this airline stock is ready for takeoff. Plus, forget the table. The tablet is the new meeting place this Thanksgiving. We've got a question on Zoom, and later we're talking turkey. That's right. We're not just taking stock questions. We're also tackling your feast day food FAQs. But let's kick things off with a check on some of the hottest trades right now among retail investors. Get straight to Kate Rooney with all the details. Hey, Kate. Hey, Melissa. A few sectors have seen some new enthusiasm from retail investors in the past month. First, electric vehicles. Tesla remains the number one stock among millennials, and it climbed a couple of spots to number one among Gen Z investors. That's according to custody and clearing platform Apex, which connects to more than 10 million brokerage accounts. Neo, another EV company, was the most traded stock among Apex's platform in November. It rose to number four among younger generations' top holdings. Xpeng and Workhorse, as well as alternative energy stocks Fuel Cell and Fuel Tech, were also among the top 20 most traded. Cannabis stocks also gained some popularity following legalization in several states after the recent election. Aurora Cannabis was the fifth most active stock for Apex, with average volume up more than 1,500% from October. It's back in the millennial top 100 list at number 90 after recently falling off of that list. And finally, vaccine names. Pfizer made huge gains among every generation's rankings. The ratio of buys to sell this month is roughly three to one, which was the highest ratio of any stock in the top 20. Melissa, back to you. All right, Kate, thanks, Kate Rooney. Um, I gotta kick it off with the Cannabis King. You were just shaking your head when you heard about the stat on Aurora, Tim. <laughs> Did you catch that? I'm sorry. Um, look, I, I just, you, you know, this, it's, it's shocking to me that this is the name that retail wants to chase. It, it's, I, I recognize it trades you know, in the U.S. It's an ADR form, and it was one of the earlier players. Their merger with Medrelief back in the early days was a really exciting moment. But um, this is a company, I, I think, that the, the balance sheet doesn't make sense. The, the opportunity set doesn't make sense. I think there's goodwill and impairments there. Um, it's a trade. And, and if that's the case, and we know retail's in for a big trade, there's been a big trade in some of the Canadian LPs. But in terms of the fundamentals, this is something that scares me. And, and the cannabis space is a place where uh, a, a lot of people really, and we've talked about, do your homework, understand what you invest in. And I'm not sure that that's what's going on here with Aurora. But um, I, I could do much better to recommend other names, and we'll save that for another show. But that, that was a legit head shake. Do you, uh, Dan, like anything that the retail traders trading right now? Well, I mean, listen, it's pure momentum. You could throw Bitcoin in there, too, right? Yeah. And, you know, Bitcoin has, what, a $370 billion market cap. That would be, what, the sixth, seventh, eighth largest um, stock in the S&P 500, if it were a stock. So right now, what I see is some of these recent IPOs have gone absolutely crazy. Have you seen Palantir in the last two months? It's gone from 10 to almost 30 or something like that. That was a, a stock that IPO just two months ago. Um, you know, there's just a lot of those sorts of names. It just seems to to be a big FOMO trade right here on the stuff that retail traders feel like can be pushed around right now. What does that tell you about the market, Bonoin? I mean, if, if you see this reach for all this momentum for the high flyers right now at a time when the markets themselves are at record highs, we just had Dow 30K this week. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, and, and it's really bearing itself out in the valuations. I mean, Dan mentioned momentum trading. That's really the way you've got to play the market right now. That and 
thematic plays and overlays. You've seen it with the proliferation of ETFs across various sectors. And so what's happening is people aren't doing their, their research or their due diligence, as, as Tim mentioned. And they're saying, listen, I just want exposure to this overall trend. I think that we're going to trend higher. I'm going to put a certain level in. And what I'm hoping is that the retail investor is putting in stops and certain trigger levels that they're willing to get in and out of positions. But you hit the nail on the head. Trading positions, not long-term investment positions. All right, let's help the people out there. Kate just mentioned the high interest in EV stock, so that leads us right to our first question tonight. Questions in regards to Tesla. Uh, How do you feel that stock is uh, structured to do now that it's going to join the S&P? Thank you. Can you imagine, Tim, that Tesla is up more than 40 percent since November 16th, the day of the announcement of its S&P inclusion, and traders bought and sold an average of $26 billion in Tesla shares per session for the past five days? Look, I can't imagine, and I've seen this before. Uh, our audience knows I've not been uh, constructive on Tesla for a long time. And, and, and those that have been the Momo retail players or the real fundamental bottom-up investors have, have had a great ride here. Um, the, the waiting and the passive money chasing, but the concept and the catalyst as a moment that would also then see fresh momentum for the stock, very clear. And we've seen that with the stock, whether it was a stock split, uh, a four-to-one that meant nothing uh, in terms of adding both fundamental or even intrinsic value, it didn't matter, right? So uh, it never seems to matter with, with Tesla. Um, good for the people that have been long. And, and I think in terms of the EV story, we spent a lot of time talking about it. If anything, the bright spotlight on EV and whether it's Neo or the GM Fords has meant they all go higher, not that people are terribly worried about the competitive threat. I mean, Bono, when you're mentioning thematic investing, if you wanted to invest in this theme, Tesla is the whale. The other EV players are much smaller in terms of market cap and in terms of percent of business for a GM or a Ford. That's much smaller as well. Is this the only way? Uh, it's not the only way, but I mean, it, clearly it's the prevailing way. And I, and I, too, have to raise my hand and say, listen, I haven't been on board. Clearly, I just haven't seen what everybody else or seemingly everybody else has seen. Again, another one of, the, one of these momentum plays and what I think is going to happen is that in the second stage of this, when it really comes down to the manufacture and distribution of this, a company like GM is well positioned in terms of understanding how to manage the logistics, manufacturing, and distribution business of it. So for me, I think that might be a better way to play it thematically, and you're not paying whatever nosebleed valuation uh, that it's trading at 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 this current moment in time. Let's get to our next question. It is about the biggest company in the world by market cap. Elijah wants to know about Apple. Hey, so I have a quick question about Apple. Um, about last week or two weeks ago, I believe, Apple uh, had hit uh, a low at $108 a share. And I'm wondering, as of right now, do you think that it will hit that low again for me to buy those shares up at 108 or do you think it's pretty much leveled out at the 113 to 115 level that it is now? Special shout out to Elijah because I think he also sent in a question for options action. So he's like a serial question asker, which is great. We love to hear from you guys. Uh, Dan, do you have a, an answer for Elijah? 
I do. I'm going to leave the door open for Elijah here. Um, listen, here's the thing. You know, putting a, a point in time at a price on a stock like this um, is, is really a tough call here. But I will tell you this. If you just look at this chart and you look at this wedge that's forming from the September 2nd high up at uh, 138, you look at the September low, it was about 103. You see that we're making this little bit of a triangle. The tension is building. This stock is going to break one way or the other. Now, we won't get earnings for a bit. We know that they've had three different lines of phones released September, October, November. Um, investors were disappointed in their fiscal Q4 um, results when they reported at the end of October. Um, they got bailed out. This work from home and this school from home has been great for um, iPads and Macs. So let's just see if that 5G super cycle is coming the way a lot of investors are hoping. Right now, I think it's kind of a wait and see. So if you're looking at here with the stock around 115 or so, and you think there's downside risk to possibly that 103 level, then you start smaller than you would if you are 100% convicted that's going higher and you kind of dollar cost average. I think you're okay averaging in the stock between these levels and probably $100, which was the gap on their fiscal Q3 earnings back in July. That's probably really good support for the stock. Yeah, I, I do too. And, and uh, the big E, Elijah, Mel, you remember the big E, Elvin Hayes, right? He was one of your favorite basketball yeah, players, sure. I know. Um, so, so, so he... He's <laughs> Elijah's throwing a couple levels here, and Dan is doing a great job of, of basically saying, look, you know, plus or minus here, you know, this gets you into the Apple. Am I an investor or am I a trader? Um, if you're an investor in Apple, you believe in 5G refresh and, and that, yes, uh, Apple's had a great ride with remote work from home, uh, holiday double season, maybe triple holiday season with Macs and wearables. Um, and, and even a, an iPad refresh. But the story is still uh, about the multiple expansion that's been coming with services. And then this 5G opportunity, which, look, most of us have no idea how exciting 5G is going to be. And, and soon, uh, once the, the person next to you is using that 5G phone, you're going to want to go out and get one. And Apple's going to be in the front seat there. So uh, I wouldn't get too cute on Apple. Um, I have made it clear that it points the, the multiple stretched. Um, and what thing, but um, I think it's as comfortable of an investment as a long-term investor you can make, especially in the big five stocks. All right. Let's turn now to the financials because we've got a question on, on that. Uh, they've been on fire this week. The XLF ETF, the tracks of space, up nearly 5%. So our next viewer wants to know if one of the big banks is a good bet. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, wanted to see what you thought about going into 2021 about the stock Bank of America. Also, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you as well. Uh, Bonwin, what do you say? Well, listen, I, I'm pretty constructive on the banks and have been for some time over the long term. And I realize that we've kind of been trading lockstep with the yield curve steepening um, and, and, and flattening. With that said, listen, this thing still trades at like one times price to book, I believe. I think a lot of the banks, City still trades cheap, Morgan Stanley, Goldman. Um, over a longer term, I, I personally like them and I'm constructive on them. Um, to, so one of the previous points made, I wouldn't get too cute in terms of trying to pick an exact level here, particularly if this is a buy and hold for you and your investment portfolio. 
Yeah, so I'd take a crack at this one here. You know, I, I was actually not particularly constructive on banks all year, and I kind of changed my tune coming out of the summer, especially as we start thinking about how investors position for a new year, how they position for um, a real recovery on the back of vaccines for this virus. And my thought was, not even with rates going higher, that the banks will start to reflect or they'll play a little bit of catch up. They're doing that right now. Bank America, in particular to me, it broke that downtrend that has been in place since the January, February highs, but specifically that June and then again the summer high here. I think you probably get an opportunity to buy this thing a little bit lower, maybe 27 and a half or so, but I do not see the stock above 35 bucks. If you do the math here, for them to get back to peak earnings, it's going to take them a couple years. This stock is going to be expensive in the low to mid 30s. Tim may have a slightly different stance because I know he's long it, uh, but to me, I think that this is a bit of a trading vehicle and if you can buy it when it comes back into that breakout level and really kind of buy time until we get to mid-2021, because that's what I think where you're going to want to own these stocks. Your the quick two cents, Tim. Two cents. Uh, why Dan's a good trader is, is I think he noticed some changes and that he changed some of his view. I, I, I just think that uh, the yield curve will continue to steepen. They'll just my quick Treasury lesson is there's so much supply coming. Uh, I do think fiscal spending will push rates a little bit higher until the Fed decides enough. Um, yield curves going higher. Banks, you stay with them. All right. We're just getting started here on a special edition of Fast Money. Still ahead, we've got a question on one of the hottest stocks of the year. Should you save some room for Zoom this Thanksgiving? But first, we're hitting the friendly skies on what is typically one of the busiest travel days of the year. Own Phil LeBeau standing by Chicago's O'Hare Airport. Phil, what's coming up? Melissa, it is steady, but not jam-packed as it usually is on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So what does this mean for the airlines and, more importantly, for airline investors as those stocks have been moving higher recently? We'll talk about that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to a special bonus hour of Fast Money. We're taking your questions, so tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. Well, today is uh, typically one of the busiest travel days of the year. Our next viewer wants to know if one airline stock is set to soar. Hey, Hunter here from Texas. Fast Money, my question is on American Airlines. Dow Jones hit 30,000. Do we think it's going to continue to push forward or can we expect a major pullback and then obviously a, a continual push forward from there? Uh, what do you think? Let me know specifically American Airlines. Before we answer Hunter's question on AAL, let's get to Phil LeBeau, who is live at Chicago's O'Hare Airport, of course, because everybody is getting out of town. Phil. Well, usually they're getting usually. out of town on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving uh, I think some of that has shifted this year because of people's work situations, having more flexibility. I think a number of people probably went last weekend when we saw big numbers. So when you're looking at what we're seeing today, and believe me, this is not what we usually see on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. What we're seeing for Thanksgiving is that today and Sunday are expected to be the two busiest. But I would even take back today being one of the busiest since before the pandemic, because we have really seen slower crowds than uh, typically what we usually see. About a million people are expected to fly today. You'll probably see greater than a million on Sunday. And this is this week, whether you take today or last weekend or this coming Sunday, the busiest days that we've seen since the pandemic. Having said that, the passenger levels remain extremely weak. They're down 57% yesterday. Probably are going to be down anywhere between 50 and 55%. Nowhere close to where they were before the pandemic. And yet for the airline stocks, they have been moving higher. We've seen that over the last couple of weeks. One stock in particular we want to talk about, 
By the way, it was mixed today with many of the airline stocks finishing higher after trading lower earlier in the session. Delta Airlines worked out a deal with its pilots. They had a preliminary agreement. They have finalized it now in exchange for pay cuts. There will be no furloughs of pilots. That extends through 2022. So you've got some stability in terms of the pilots uh, and that contract at Delta. But, Melissa, it is a little odd to be here on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I've been doing this for over 20 years. It is typically a madhouse in here at this time. Not the case today. I'm still surprised that there are people out there traveling, Bill. (laughs) Thank you. Phil LeBeau at Chicago's O'Hare Airport. Let's get back to Hunter's question on American Airlines here. Bonwin, what what do you think, especially given what Phil had said about, uh, you know, the number of people traveling and it's still not back to pre-pandemic levels, even on the busiest day? Yeah, so earlier in the show, we talked about thematic plays and, and strategic thematic plays, right? And I think I understand why people are looking for the next big leverage beta play reopening epicenter type of trade. What still gives me pause are two things. One, so right now you have a catalyst for travel and we're still 50% under uh, previous high capacity. And then business travel, which is going to continue to be suppressed in my view. And if you really look at that balance sheet, $40 billion of debt really gives me pause. Layoffs, operating leverage notwithstanding, it's going to be a tough sledding in terms to really pass through earnings to shareholders when you've got that behemoth debt looming on your balance sheet. All right. Uh, Let's stick with the travel theme. Sunil has got a question about the reopening trade. There were a lot of people at the airport this past weekend for the Thanksgiving holiday. People want to get out. People want to travel. I want to have a travel play for 2021 since there's a lot of vaccines coming to market early next year. So would you rather Carnival or Disney? Disney, we have theme parks, we have the cruises, and we have hotels. Carnival, a pure play on the cruise industry. So which one would you rather own for 2021? A would you rather from our viewers. Uh, Tim, (laughs) would you rather (laughs) Carnival or Disney? Mel, I'm... I'm surprised you're letting, you know, that that type of uh, stepping out of line there on your show. So someone calls in and does their own. They self would you rather. I mean, Grasso gets in trouble for this all the time. Um, Anyway, um, I think you've got a case here on Carnival. What what do I say all the time, which is uh, you make the most money when things go from terrible to just bad. So the move in Carnival over the last couple of weeks, uh, really off of uh, lows of about actually four weeks ago, is 70 percent. Um, the good news for the longer term story here is if you looked at those, those third quarter numbers, uh, they weren't terrible. And in fact, the EBITDA, EBITDA trends were decent. There, were ca- there was cash flow. Um, there was ultimately a story. They raised almost $2 billion today to fortify a balance sheet uh, in a high yield market that at least has been relatively forgiving. Um, but Disney. I mean, I'm long Disney. I'm not long Carnival. Uh, and I believe in the story of Disney. I believe in streaming. I believe in Disney Plus and, and over 100 million uh, global subs there and the ability to, to begin to monetize in DTC. So I could talk for a lot more about Disney, but I, I think it's the better reopening trade. It's interesting you mentioned Carnival. I mean, Carnival just recently did that debt offering with no assets pledged. So non-collateralized debt they're selling in the market. And people are buying this. Um, Dan, I'll throw that would you rather to you. Disney or yeah. CCL? 
Well, listen, I think Tim really laid it out very well why people were willing to kind of dip their toe in the water when Disney was just getting destroyed because of that diversification. If you look at Disney now, year over year, the stock is up, right? So it's basically incorporating that reopening trade in 2021 at this point. Um, so to me, the easy money, if there was easy money to be made, has been kind of made in Disney right here with Carnival down 60% from its 52-week highs, 70% from its 2018 highs. That's where you're going to get your bang for your buck at this moment, especially if you think that these vaccines are coming hot in the first half um, of next year. So I think to, to your point about investors buying the debt without collateral against it, I mean, the equity should be a decent play, at least from a leverage standpoint, if you are optimistic about the reopening. So to me, I think you get more bang for your buck right here from. Welcome back to a bonus hour of Fast Money. We're going to take a quick break from answering your questions about stocks and talk some turkey. With the pandemic sidelining most people's holiday plans, there's sure to be plenty of first-time turkey cookers tomorrow. And that leads us to our next viewer question. Hi, I'm Joe from New Jersey. Uh, this is my first time cooking a turkey. A little intimidated. Uh, looking for any tips or tricks you might have that'll help me out. Thanks. We're trying to help everybody with everything tonight. <laughs> we know who to ask. Joining us now is Butterball's Turkey Talk Line Supervisor, Bill Nolan. Bill, great to have you with us. Um, thanks for spending part of the, the pre-Thanksgiving day with us. Um, we want to get a we want to get an answer for that first time turkey cooker. Um, what's your what's your biggest what's your number one tip for for newbies? Sure, and thanks for having me. It's great to be here. The number one tip is not to be nervous. Make a plan for how you're going to do this tomorrow, because if you make a plan, you won't have any surprises. A turkey looks very intimidating to make. It's big. We only do it once a year, or maybe it's the first time they're doing it. But it's one of the simplest things to cook if you just follow a simple plan. And that plan includes knowing what temperature you're going to cook it at. Butterball recommends 325. Knowing that um, it's going to take anywhere from three to five hours, depending on the turkey size. And most importantly, make sure that you have a reliable meat thermometer, because that's the way you can tell if the turkey is done. We, re we recommend taking the temperature of the turkey in two different areas, and that would be the breast area, which is the top of the turkey, which needs to be at 170 degrees to have it completely done. And also in the thigh, which is behind the leg, that needs to be cooked to 180 degrees. If you remember those temperatures, oven temperatures as well, you will have a successful Thanksgiving meal. You make it seem so easy, Bill. I want to go out and cook my own my own turkey. Uh, you know, for a lot of people this year, their <laughs> gatherings are going to be much smaller. Uh, there's a lot of talk about just breasts or much smaller birds. Have the qu types of mm -hmm. questions that have come into the hotline changed uh, this year with the pandemic? Yeah, they have. You know, and some of it is first time cooks that are coming in because you know we did some surveying. Uh, over the summer. And we asked folks, you know, are you still going to celebrate Thanksgiving? What are we looking at? What can we forecast? And we found that nearly 90% of the people that we surveyed said they were still going to have Thanksgiving, although it might be smaller, smaller groups, people staying within their pods, but a lot of first time cooks. So we're getting people giving first or asking first time cook questions. Um, people are asking if there's an alternative to turkey, if they uh, are buying a whole turkey, which would be a breast which would be a, a roast, a turkey mm -hmm. roast. Butterball sells a full line of those products as well. But we always tell people too, nothing better than turkey leftovers. Everybody loves turkey leftovers. So don't be afraid to buy a turkey, a whole turkey, 
even a regular sized turkey that you normally buy because you can eat those leftovers for three days after Thanksgiving safely. And then if you still have leftovers, you can freeze them for up to a month. Bill, thanks so much for all your tips and wisdom. (laughs) Bill Nolan of the Butterball Hotline. All this talk getting us hungry. Hungry for a game of... Trade it or fade it! (laughs) That's right, trade it or fade it. But in the spirit of Thanksgiving, it's going to be with a twist. We're calling it feast or fast. Looking at some hot food stocks. Are the traders feasting on these names or pushing their plates to the side? fasting, if you will. Let's start off with McCormick. The stock has uh, climbed nearly 15% over the past month. So, Tim, feast or fast for you? First of all, I, I have to say, Mel, um, by the way, Bill Nolan and, and the hotline, who, who knew there was a, a turkey hotline? Great to have him as a guest. Tremendous. Um, this is the best game we've ever played in terms of names that actually define are you a buyer <laughs> or seller. Okay, n- don't rag on others. Don't use this opportunity to rag Feast. on games of the past. <laughs> no, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Look, Feast versus fast. I mean, those are those are very clear and vivid terms. Those those are pronounced and 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 anyway, um, I'm absolutely fasting on McCormick. Again, it's a name that was so much in the spotlights because suddenly people were cooking at home. Suddenly, you know, we're putting more spices. Mel, you're putting a little bit more of the Italian seasoning on, on you know, whatever. Um, I, I think the multiple doesn't make sense here. They just did a deal with Cholula. I think, you know, probably paid too much for it. I think the 210 peak on this stock is something uh, I don't think the stock's going to see uh, in the near term. Yeah, I'm also fasting on this one, Mel, here um, for a lot of the reasons that Tim just mentioned. I think if you look at this chart, too, this thing is <laughs> trading like one of those tech stocks that have cooled out since that September 2nd high. That's when it made an all-time high. It's down about 13% since then, trading it above 30 times. I will tell you, I love a good Texas peat sauce, and I love the Cholula, depending upon what I'm eating. So I like that they're all in the same McCormick house, but I'm not sure you need to pay 32 times. Uh, this year's earnings after the run this stock has had off of its lows this year. Tallulah on a scramble, I think, is, is amazing. The best part about yeah. this game is the fast animation. So I hope, I hope it'll come up again, because then we'll see it, because the sound effect is amazing. All right, next up, for any non-meat eaters out there looking for a turkey alternative, Beyond Meat taking a big tumble over the last few months. So, Dan, feast or fast? Yeah, this is a fast, and I'm kind of in the Guy Adami camp. It says something to do with Constitution, not the U.S. Constitution. It's Guy's fragile Constitution here. So I'm fasting on this one. Fasting. That's a good We we have to run the right animation. (laughs) That was a feast sound. Yeah, that was a feast sound. Let's do the sound. There it is. Yeah. All right. I don't know. I, I, I might have told the producers something else, but I started thinking about Guy's Constitution with the Beyond Burger, and it's no good in my mind. All right, but listen, here's the thing. This stock over the last four or five months has had um, really good support at 120. I just feel like it's going to break. This is a $9 billion market cap company with a lot of competition. I know they've signed on a lot of big retailers and a lot of big restaurants. I, I'm just not certain um, that the valuation makes sense on this one. I'm fasting to make room for tomorrow, but I'm long-term a bit more constructive on the name. Listen, I think the McDonald's deal, or lack thereof, is a bit of a challenge here. Uh, but listen, I think this is a new wave. I, speaking of thematic plays or secular trends, I buy into this. I just think there's a bit of a headwind in the short term, but I'm long-term constructive. There's no stock so far that's gotten a, fe- a feast. Um, next up is Deer. D-E-E-R-E. 
not a pure play food stock. But the farm equipment maker had solid earnings today. And listen to this crazy stat. Wheat prices of 22 percent since early August when they last reported earnings, driven by a big increase in people baking. So bullish for deer's bottom line, the demand for ag equipment. So Bonowin, is deer a feast or a fast? Uh, I'm feasting. But this is certainly a trading position. Now, I've mentioned many times, I do not step in front of freight trains. This thing has been up and to the right relentlessly. I still think, uh, given valuations of a lot of these reopening and value trades, you've got to have a quick stop. But in the short term, I'm feasting. I'll take seconds. Yeah, I mean, first of all, why wouldn't everything from here on out be a feast? Now that I've heard that sound effect, that is too good. I mean, that cracks me up. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm, and who, who did that? I'd love to know who created the feast sound effect in New Jersey. Um, they're very talented. Um, John Deere is very talented. Commodity prices, ag is moving higher. This whole resource trade is also tied into ag. And remember um, when there was a time when wheat was almost treated like a strategic asset in terms of what was going on with ag prices. We were talking food shortages. Uh, we're not going to get there again. But this trade still has legs. I am feasting on deer. All right. Coming up, it is back to your stock questions. Is there no place like Zoom for the holidays? Find out if this work-from-home all-star will win Thanksgiving this year. Plus, we've got a cat question. No, not caterpillar. We're not talking industrials. We'll tell you what we mean when this bonus hour of Fast Money returns. Welcome back to a special edition of Fast Money. We're tackling all your top questions. This next one is from Anthony. He's asking about one of this year's hottest stocks. What's up, everybody from Fast Money? My name is Anthony. I'm from Miami, Florida. And I want to ask a quick question in regards to us individual investors that we ask ourselves as well. And that is about Zoom. It's about this work-at-home stock that I have in my portfolio. It plunged on the November 9th because of vaccine. But now that the COVID cases are surging and there's most likely going to be more probable lockdowns, my question to you guys is, what's the brief analysis that you can give out on Zoom just for the long run from here to 2021, if it's possible? Any importance and details, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Joining us to help tackle this one is RBC analyst Alex Zukin. Alex, great to have you with us. Um, I, I think that this question from Anthony is one that we all ask when it comes to a, a stock like, like a Zoom. What happens in the post-pandemic world? And I'm wondering, in your analysis, if you backed out, let's say, 20 percent of the usage that we saw during the pandemic or whatever number it is that you think will go away post-pandemic, what does that multiple look like? Yeah, it's a great question. First of all, so thanks for having me. And, and uh, I hope you, have, you and your viewers all have a great Thanksgiving, uh, some of which will, will be on Zoom. Um, look, I, I, we, we don't th- we clearly Zoom has benefited from the pandemic uh, by accelerating the category of adoption for for video communication. But we think post pandemic, um, this is still a very high growth company. You know, next year, we our upside scenario suggests 65 or, or up almost 60 percent growth. Uh, the streets at 25. That's off of, you know, a 400 percent or 350 percent growth number this year. So we think video isn't going away. If anything, we think it's going to be more um, more part of the, the conversation, both at, at large companies that you know, invest in, in these resources today. Uh, you know, while 50 percent of the Fortune 500 is a Zoom customer. Only 12% are paying that them over $100,000. So we think there's a lot of opportunity in the enterprise. 
but bigger picture, we think there's a nascent opportunity for Zoom to monetize the consumer with this on Zoom platform that they launched at their most recent Zoomtopia um, conference. We think there's a massive opportunity for them to to really leverage an interactive video platform for, mm-hmm. for education, for uh, enter- entertainment, for exercise, and, and really become the center of of gravity for almost a new economic phenomenon. They've turned what was a commodity. Uh, into a utility, and I think now the the real opportunity is how do they, you know, activate this this consumer um, phenomenon that that's been unleashed by the pandemic uh, for for you know n- again not just video communication but right. all manners of uh, of commerce that, yeah. that are possible. And and to that point, in terms of of getting the consumer on board, Alex, do you think Thanksgiving is going to be? One of those opportunities where some consumers, some people out there who might not otherwise use Zoom, maybe a grandma or an uncle, um, actually uses the platform in order to have a Thanksgiving dinner and may realize, you know what, this this isn't so bad. You know, I, I, I think everybody wants to be with their families. I think everybody wants to be uh, physically connected, particularly at a time like this. But I think just as we've seen it in our schools, uh, you know, every earnings call that, that we have with the company, I start off just by thanking uh, the CEO, uh, because I do think that again, they've enabled us to to, to really, you know, to survive uh, through this pandemic in, in a way that you know few thought would would probably be, be possible. So I think Thanksgiving is absolutely an opportunity for for more people to interact for the first time uh, with with a platform that connects people mm-hmm. wherever they are, uh, you know, globally in a, in a manner that enables them to to have a connection. Uh, and I think that absolutely is going to be unlocked in Thanksgiving. You've seen it in weddings. You've seen it in, 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 in other uh, holiday celebrations. Sure. You've seen it in education. And I think you're going to continue to see it again, not just uh, not not just through the pandemic, but but well beyond that. Right. Alex, great to speak with you. Thanks for your time. Have a great Thanksgiving. Alex Zukin Thanks, of RBC. Um, Dan. Yeah, I see everything that he sees, but I also see a stock trading at 40 times sales and, and, and you know, next year's um, growth that he's talking about as, as it relates to sales. I also don't see the consumer opportunity that he sees. I don't think any grandmother is paying the $15 a month um, to subscribe to this. I don't see the opportunity in education, too. If you have kids and they are home and they're learning on Zoom, you hate it, okay? It's not something you're going to sign up for, and it's not something anyone's paying for right now, either. So when I think about the enterprise opportunity, I also think about my own usage. I did a Teams call the other day. I did a Google Meet call the other day. I do FaceTime calls. So, you know, this is to me a great product. It's a great service. It's a one trick pony right now. So you tell me how they're going to monetize that um, to a greater extent than in a pandemic right now um, and how they grow into that valuation. I'm just not so certain they are able to do that next year. All right. Coming up, we've got more answers to all your burning questions in this bonus hour of Fast Money, including a question on a rockin' radio stock. Be sure to tune in. You won't want to miss this one. This Fast Money special edition is back in two. Welcome back to this bonus hour of Fast Money. We've got a few more viewer questions to answer. Next up, a question on a hot radio stock. 
my name is Ellen Marie Marsh and I live in Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, I've been an actress on Broadway for about 15 years and now due to the industry shutdown, I have been pivoting my career and I have been working more in creating and producing podcasts. I was wondering if Sirius XM would be a good investment at this time. Tim, what do you tell Ellen about Sirius? Ellen, first of all, sorry for what's going on for a lot of people in the arts. It's been brutal. And, and good for you for thinking about this, because I think this is a great call. I think it's a great call for different reasons. Um, Sirius has benefited. They've raised their sub-guidance two times in, in, in the last month or so. They had a very strong 3Q, um, free cash flow generation, capital return, and, and getting into the digital advertising space. So I, I like it. All right. Next up, we have a question about CAT, not the company. <laughs> Hi, this is uh, Jack, Abby, and Avery from Plano, Texas. Our question is for Dan Nathan. Are you jealous of your cat Tigger's fame? Yes, Mr. Dan. Are you jealous of Tigger's newfound fame due to the Room Raider? Now, the backstory, of, of course, is that Dan, we're all broadcasting, well, they're broadcasting from home, and Dan, your cat Tigger. Um, climbed up on the bench and it looked like he was looking in the mirror and hanging out and enjoying what you were saying on the show. And Room Raider on Twitter consequently gave you a, a 10 out of 10, the highest honor in Room, <laughs> in room Raider for Tigger. Truly an honor. I, listen, I'm going to give all the credit to the cat and obviously the Fast Money program, but a shout out to my amazing nieces uh, down there in Texas. Happy Thanksgiving to you guys and to all our viewers and obviously to my main man, Tigger, the cat. <laughs> Somewhere there. Coming up, we are wrapping up the three biggest stories from this holiday short week, including a major milestone for the Dow. Stay tuned. We're back right after this. Coming up at the top of the hour, do not miss the news with Shepard Smith. Shep will be all over the biggest headlines from the day and the week. So why don't we trade the news here? This week, a huge milestone for the Dow. The index surpassing 30,000 for the first time ever. So where does the Dow head next? Lots of headlines off of this when Main Street was watching, Tim. So what do you think? Well, the, the Dow may head ahead of the S&P and the NASDAQ, I, I think, for this next move. I, I think the, the, the trend and the themes here that have led to the Dow getting to 33, excuse me, 30,000 um, are, are, are things that are intact. And they include industrials and banks and late cycle uh, dynamics that I think continue and, and would continue outperformance for, for uh, you know, some, some stocks that people have been waiting for for a long time. We talk about GM. We've been talking about FedEx. Uh, we've been talking about names that were not big performers until they turned, and they've turned hard. So good for the Dow. A lot of changes in the composition also this year. Uh, we talked about some big moves out, the Exxon out, uh, the CRM in. You know, these are, these are, there's a lot, lot to talk about in, in what happened here. Yeah, and, and the markets are a forward-looking mechanism, right? And so right now we have a tr transition of power, an incoming administration, which seems to want to deliver a big stimulus check to the American people, Dan. So doesn't that all bode, and vaccines, of course, on the way, doesn't that all bode well for market performance? 
Yeah, I mean, it does, except for the fact that we've just tacked on, you know, three, four, five trillion dollars in debt just to get here. So if we're talking about the Dow Jones, a price weighted index, I don't find that particularly interesting. I'd focus a bit more on the S&P 500, draw a line from the January 2018 high, connect it to the January 2000 or, you know, the high that we made just in February. We're hitting up against massive technical resistance. So a Dow weighted, uh, you know, price weighted index of 30 stocks that are playing catch up. That's not how I want to invest for 2021. I want to look at a broader measure, the S&P 500. Now, you could say the Russell 2000 just went up 20 percent in a straight line, but again, also laggards. Yeah, I mean, Bono, and I guess this is, gets to the broader question of how can the economy, in, economy be in one state and the markets be all the way up here right now? Does that make sense? Oh, my goodness. Great question. Great question. Um, no, I mean, we, we've seen that there really is this dislocation between the economy and the market, and really, it's been fit. It's been fueled by fiscal stimulus and access to liquidity. And that access to liquidity is not trickling down into Main Street, into small and medium-sized businesses that need this for survival. We're essentially butting up against the holiday season, and we still don't have a way for people to return to normalcy. Europe is back shutting down. So yes, I think you continue to see this disparity, this dislocation between the market and the general economy. Uh, oddly enough, we're kind of sim singing a similar refrain that we sang when we talked about large cap tech. If you look at these value names, they're also achieving high valuations, yet the, 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 the liquidity in the market is going to continue to fuel this uh, to the upside, at least in the interim. All right. Next up, President-elect Joe Biden picking former Fed Chair Janet Yellen to become the next Treasury Secretary. If confirmed, Yellen would become the first woman ever to hold the job. We also broke some news last hour that President-elect Biden's economic team is starting to come together. Sources telling CNBC that TIAA's president and CEO Roger Ferguson is being considered for NEC director. Former Amex CEO Chenault, Ken Chenault, eyed for the economic team. And Obama-era regulator Gary Gensler considered for Deputy Treasury Secretary. So how should investors look at this? Dan, certainly the Yellen News was welcomed. Yeah, the Yellen News is, I think, really important, right? When we think about what hasn't happened, um, we haven't had the Treasury signed on with the White House and doing a deal with Congress for that fiscal stimulus policy. What has Fed Chair Powell wanted them to do to get together and do that deal? He's saying that monetary stimulus can only do so much. So Ch Fed Chair or former Fed Chair Yellen now at Treasury, let's say, in a few months, that's how you get that infrastructure. That's how you get that fiscal stimulus going. And that's how we kind of get that bridge, I guess, at least for consumers and small businesses until the other side of the vaccines. I mean, we could be entering an, an unprecedented era here of a coordination of fiscal and monetary stimulus with Janet Yellen uh, heading the Treasury, Bonowin, and that, that would be fantastic news for the economy, for the consumer. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just one of these another one of these unknowns that's kind of been removed off of the table. Clearly, there was speculation around perhaps it would be Elizabeth Warren. And I'm not going to get into who's better or who's worse. But clearly, the market has a perception around some of these names. And what I think unanimously, there really is no questioning the qualifications of Janet Yellen uh, and her, her uh, willingness and ability to kind of be accommodative and, and take us through this to the next level. So, yes, I think it's really about us knocking down one more hurdle and moving forward. Um, and I see I think the market has kind of responded accordingly. All right. And finally, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade 
still expected to take place tomorrow, but those famous floats won't have big crowds this year. The pandemic forcing the annual holiday parade to be listed as a TV-only event. It used to go all the way up and down Manhattan, and, and this year it's confined to one block. A lot of things this year look different. Um, Macy's Day Parade is no, is no exception. Tim, um, this goes to the uh, notion that cases are spiking here, that uh, lockdown restrictions are, are increasing across the country and maybe even around the world. Um, if you take a look at Europe. So what does this signal to you for the markets? I think we're having problems with Tim's feed. So I'll go to Dan. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's really important. Mel, you said it before and you said it very eloquently. The market, we're celebrating 30,000 in the Dow. It is not the economy. There are a lot of Americans that are hurting. There are a lot of Americans who are out of work. There are a lot of Americans who have food insecurity. So as we do our feast and famine, let's remember that a lot of people are having a hard time and let's hit our local food banks. Do it today. It's a long holiday season over the next year. And we know there's not going to be a whole heck of a lot of support other than what citizens and states are doing for each other. So that's what I would leave you with. Um, and have a great Thanksgiving to everybody. I'll pass it back to you. Yeah. Quick thoughts, Bonoan. Not much to add there. I echo Dan's sentiments. Let's get out there and make a difference. Let's help those that need it. Absolutely. Happy we talk, Thanksgiving. We talked about stocks uh, for the past two hours, but remember there are a lot of very important things in this world to think about, including loved ones, your health, uh, and the uh, state of the economy in the world. That does it for us in this bonus edition of Fast Money. The news with Shepard Smith begins right now. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.